Well, good morning, everybody. How are we doing? If I haven't met you, my name is Mike Lotzer. I'm one of the pastors here, and you're joining us in a series called I Dare You. We're looking at case studies in biblical courage, because courage is a really important thing in our lives. No matter how old we are, how young we are, life doesn't run without courage. And for followers of Jesus Christ, courage is a timely virtue, because it's not easy to follow Christ in a confused and oftentimes combative culture. Today, the dare is simply, I believe, I dare you to believe God when others laugh at you. We'll get into that. And there's another one besides that. If you have your Bible, though, we're going to go to a story about a woman who just showed immense courage through prayer, consistent, persistent prayer and trust in God in the face of ridicule and torment. Hannah comes on the scene right at the beginning of the book of First Samuel. I'll be reading from the NIV, and let's start with just uh, verse uh, 2 through 10. There was a man, uh, we read in uh, verse 1, Elkanah was the man, and he had two wives, verse 2. One was called Hannah, and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord has closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. We'll stop that right there. And this does lead us into this dare, this holy dare. I dare you, I dare me, I dare all of us to believe God when others laugh at us. A little background on what we just read. You may have noticed that there's a guy who's got two wives. Now, some skeptics will say, you know, that's why you can't trust the Bible because it endorses stuff like polygamy, having multiple wives. Well, that would be a, a very uncareful, unlearned reading of the Bible, because every time polygamy is brought up in the scriptures, it's a critique. It's not an endorsement. Everybody's miserable, and you, you can see that here in this dynamic, this relationship. And so Old Testament scholars all would say, the Bible doesn't endorse this. The Bible is God colliding into human history and tradition, so it's meeting that culture where it's at, and that was a common practice of the culture, but it's not one that would be recommended because you have this rival, that's what we're called, a rival between these two wives. Now, one of the wives, Penina, quite a name, kind of reminds me of Caddyshack, like Penina, right? It's an old, old reference. Penina makes fun of Hannah because she's really fruitful. And that's just a little context we need to understand there. Why do you suppose it's such a big deal to these women to have kids? I mean, there are people in our culture 
who are really sad that they can't conceive. And, and that's a valid sadness. And if that's you, our heart goes out to you. But this, this is different. You can kind of get the temperature of the text here. And it means everything to these women. And Hannah is devastated that she can't have sons. Well, in the ancient world, if you wanted security, both national security and individual security, you had to have a lot of kids and specifically sons. Why would that be the case? Well, if there's not a lot of sons that grow up into men, you're going to have a really small military. And the ancient world was a brutal place. And what would prevent another country from just coming in and devastating you, raping and pillaging and burning everything, and now you're under the boot heel of another country all because of the birth rate. We even see in parts of Europe there's financial incentives in certain countries to have kids because certain cultures are in decline. People aren't having kids in certain parts of Europe. So it's not exactly only an ancient phenomenon, but there's also no nursing homes in the ancient world. Getting old was really rough in the ancient world unless you had a ton of kids. And so there was all the incentive in the world for women in this culture to bear lots of children, especially sons. In fact, if you were really good at bearing children, you weren't just winning at life. You were a national hero, a cultural hero. You were revered. And as all your kids walked around you, people looked at you with a sense of esteem and pride. And so the reverse would be true. If you try and try, but you bear no children, you're kind of rejected. You're despised a little. And Hannah feels the weight of this. Now, before we're too hard on that ancient culture, you know, every culture puts demands on men and women. I mean, our culture, where do all the eating disorders and the cutting come from? Maybe it's not fertility that our culture values as much as it is uh, physical appearance, a certain look that always seems to be changing and unattainable. And you also have to do it all in our culture as a woman. Like, oh, be a good mom, but also have a real great career and, and be totally independent. And, and yet you know, enjoy everything else that all these other women are enjoying on Pinterest. And, and the target is very brutal and it keeps moving in their culture, in our culture. And Hannah is experiencing the painful side of that cultural standard. And Penina seems to take delight in tormenting Hannah, not just for her desire to have kids. That's what every woman wants in that culture. But the fact that she keeps going to this annual gathering, this feast, and bringing petitions to have kids to Yahweh, to God, and she seems to earnestly think God is going to do something about this when it's obvious that year after year, God never opens her womb. And so she's making fun of her insistence that God can and will provide her a child. Bill Maher is a stand-up comic who is an atheist, fairly witty guy. But uh, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, sometimes he's a little difficult to listen to. I heard him say recently, you know, it's not that I have a ton against Christians. It's just that we fear different things. I fear climate change. Those Christians fear a demon in a red bodysuit with a pitchfork. And that's one of his more mild critiques of Christianity. He's very good at just kind of painting a character of the Christian faith and, and really making us out to be very intellectually dishonest or simpletons and things like that. And if you have spent any time on a college university recently, you're going to feel that pressure anytime on Twitter. Friends, we live in a time where our faith, like Hannah's faith, is up for mockery, where people will kind of not just enjoy, but it'll be a sport to make fun of the fact that you believe 
when you die, you're not going to stay dead. You're going to live forever. God created you to be an eternal creature. They, they laugh at that. They laugh at our commitment to the word of God. They laugh at the idea that there could be a God, if God exists, that there could be a God who actually judges the world and, and holds people to certain standards. They laugh at the idea that God would become a human being and die in our place and offer forgiveness and restoration. You're going to get mocked if you go all in. If you're a believer, if you're a follower, this was true in the ancient world, this is true now. And the question is, will you believe God when others laugh at you? I have a lot of empathy for people who fall away from their faith due to the mockery or just the maltreatment that they receive, sometimes in their own family. None of us like to be laughed at or to be made to feel different or unintelligent. You see this in kids, right? And some, some of you grew up and you were bullied terribly. And you, you could attest to just how powerful bullying and mocking is. And this is some serious bullying in the Hebrew. Uh, the phrase for torment, when Peninnah torments Hannah, it's an idiom. An idiom is something that doesn't always translate great into another language, so we have to paraphrase the meaning. It's to make thunder. The Hebrew idea is, she made, made thunder at Hannah to, to cause her to become stormy and unstable, to constantly kind of throw lightning bolts her way. And she seemed to really enjoy this, even though it completely devastates Hannah. She has a deep anguish of the soul. Now we get to the par- point, poor Hannah, where not only is she getting laughed at from her rival, her husband steps in and tries to do the husband nice comforting thing. And now let's get real, husband. Some of us have done this. You know, you tried to encourage and make things right when you saw your wife wasn't doing well, and you made things worse. And he, did, I mean, am I the only one? Right? What does he do? Well, when he brings sacrifices, he's very wealthy. If you could afford meat in the ancient world, you're wealthy. He brings this meat sacrifice to the annual temple in Shiloh. Shiloh predates Jerusalem as the worship center for the Hebrew people. And, and then they basically have a big barbecue after the sacrifice. They eat the meat that was sacrificed to God or portions of it. And he doles out portions to Peninnah and all her kids. She apparently has many. She's good at having kids. But then she gives a double portion to poor Hannah because he loves her. He feels bad for her. But do you see, husband, how that was probably not a great idea? When you give uh, a woman who doesn't have any children a double portion, who is she going to give the double portion to? As a side note, I also think, not to gender stereotype, if you're going to err on the side of giving copious amounts of meat to one of the genders, guys are probably going to dig that more often than most women. So he's kind of projecting his love language onto her, you might say. You know, here, have double the meat. Not bacon, but it's good, you know. And then, he, and then what does he say? Hannah, why are you so sad? Well, probably because of the visible reminder of my barrenness that is the double portion, husband. Oh, come on, what's got you down? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? To which she's like, no, you don't. I would literally be a cultural heroine if I could have 10 sons. Everybody would revere me. I would be, I would be the most patriotic, responsible, admired person in our society. So, no, I find myself with zero sons, which 
makes me suspect to everybody around me. At best, I'll be pitied, but most people will mock me or think that I've done something to deserve this barrenness. He does reveal another layer of dysfunction in multiple wives' situation, doesn't he? I love you. Doesn't my love mean more? Do you see what's happening? It's as if he's saying, sure, Penin is really good at raising kids, but you're the one that makes my heart really pitter-patter. Now, if you were in that situation, just imagine you're Hannah. You're You're getting sniped at year after year after year. You're getting bullied by this woman. Wouldn't that be the moment that you kind of bring that back to Penina and be like, you know what? Uh, yeah, maybe I can't finish this double portion, but it's also a reminder that, you know, you're just the one who breeds, has the kid, but, but the real romance happens when he visits me. You know, like we love each other with a love that you'll never have. That's what a lot of people in our flesh would be tempted to do when we're back against the wall. Her silence, her unwillingness to engage in that type of mutual bullying, and instead, she, she doesn't just sit there, she pours her heart out to God in trusting prayer, says a lot about the courage that we so desperately need to learn from this imperfect but impressive case study. So I, I bring the question back to us. Will you believe God when others laugh at you? came across an interesting quote, courage does not always roar. Sometimes courage is the quiet voice at the end of the day saying, I will try again tomorrow. It's not always loud and aggressive. Sometimes it comes in that gritty form of this doesn't all make sense. It hurts. I don't like how this makes me feel, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just go to bed and trust that God is going to be faithful tomorrow. I'm going to take it one day at a time. Would that courage be valuable in your life right now? Would it be applicable if you're going through something that's really difficult that makes you feel like an outsider because of your faith? Of course it would. Let's continue in the story. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli, this is the priest, observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. On the, on the surface here, this part of scripture makes us wonder if she's bargaining. Have you ever bargained with God? You really wanted that job, but a lot of qualified applicants are going for it. And you know, at the end of the day, you're probably not going to, but God, if you just give me that job, if I just get into this school, if I just land a relationship with this person I've gone on a few dates with, 
And I know that they're not into me, but I'm into them and just make it happen, Lord. And then, oh man, if I get that job, I will start tithing at least 4%, maybe five. I'll work up to the tithe. But you know, like I will, I promise if you heal me of this physical disease that I probably contributed to over the last 60 years of abusing my body. But if you heal me of that, then I will join the gym (laughs) and go sometimes like twice a month. We bargain with God, and that's natural, and that's human. And so it's worth asking, is that what she's doing here? Because it would appear that she just got to a point where enough is enough. If you give me this kid I want so much, I'll do this. I'll scratch your back. Here's the problem with that theory. Verse 18 says, after she offered this vow, she went away. She was no longer sad. She could eat. She was so sad she couldn't eat. She brought, she had peace. Now, now how does that figure? Because typically, when you bargain with God, this is the order of things. You pray, then you kind of cross your fingers, and then, oh, there's a pregnancy. He delivered, and then there's the peace. But she skipped a very important thing. She prays, she has immediate peace, and then in time, if you keep reading, there's a pregnancy. What does that look like? Well, to understand how crazy this is, you need to understand what she is giving up. And, and we're basically just given a phrase that they all would have known, so we need to do a little cultural explanation. No razor will ever touch this child's head. There are 12 tribes in Israel. They all have different functions. One are called the Levites, and the Levites are the priests and the clerical people. If you're born into that tribe, you're very unique from the other 11 tribes. You will be managing the functions of the temple and the sacrifice. You'll be the pastor type. But in this Jewish system, that's an intense calling. So much so you can't own any property. You can't have a business. You get no inheritance. You rely solely on the good grace of all the other 11 tribes. It's pretty intense. Now, Occasionally, there will be an individual from one of the other 11 tribes who feels a calling to become a Levite, to give up all the benefits of being in their tribe and to go be a cleric, go be a priest or a helper in the temple. And there is a word for a voluntary transfer to become a Levite. It's called being a Nazarite, taking the Nazarite vow. It has to be done voluntarily, either by you or, in some cases, your parents can offer a child in the womb to become a Nazarite, to become conscripted into the service of the temple. Now, this is not something that happens very often because in a culture, as we've already covered, that values having children because it means everything to them, why would you ever give one up? To give up a child as a Nazarite would mean as soon as you wean that child, mom, you get to see that child maybe once a year. They just belong to the service of the temple. You don't get to have all that nurturing, memory-making experience. Now, I know some young moms are like, there's a few of my kids I would give up. And, you know, it'd be tempting. I'm just saying I'd go look at the temple. And... But seriously, what bargaining motivation would she have at that point? Idioms, as we mentioned, are things that are hard to translate into other languages. There's another idiom in the the chunk that we just read. Uh, It was actually in verse 9. It says, Hannah stood up, and then she goes to the temple in prayers. 
And, and in English, that just looks like, okay, well, you have to stand up before you walk to the temple. Thanks for including that. You know, that was, you didn't have to say that, but that's... No, think of the English idiom, she put her foot down. If you were to read that in another language, you'd be like, so? You have to put your feet down to, to move. But we would know that meant, no, she means business. She's put her foot down. That's what that means. And the, the Hebrew hearers of this text would go, oh, she stood up. It means she has made a significant shift in her thinking, her approach. Something clicked. Something shifted. She's not, no longer to just let life happen and just be a victim and just suffer and just get made fun of. But she's not going to abandon her faith in God. She goes to the temple. She has such a passionate prayer time that, that the priest thinks she's drunk. I mean, something is very different on this annual check-in. When, but what's not different is she does ask for a, a child. She said, I really do want a son, but my thinking has shifted. I've always wanted a son for me. Now I want to ask you to let me have a son for you, God. That's a different ask. Whatever the outcome of this prayer, I'm going to live with it. It's as if she's saying that, but if you give me a child, it won't be for my social status. It won't be for my security when I age because I'm going to give him over to be a Nazarite. Nazarites were um, visually recognizable because they couldn't shave their hair or trim their beards to a certain length. So when she said, no razor will ever touch his head, that, that's what we were to understand. I'm going to give him up to be a voluntary Levite, which means he'll never be able to have inheritance, which means my security financially is no better off than it was before I bore this child. It means I'll see him once a year. So I'm still going to go to the temple and I'm still going to go to the market as that one woman that doesn't have a son. And I'm still going to endure the stares and the jeers and the judgment of the cultural standard around me. And they'll probably even be worse. Did you hear about Hannah? She couldn't get pregnant for like 10 years. And then I even heard she got drunk in the temple. I'm not sure if that's true, but I heard a rumor about it. And then she was praying. And then she decided when she finally did get pregnant to give her son up to be a Nazarite. Isn't she nuts? This isn't bargaining, my friends. Something has shifted in her, and it dares us to do something. It's as if Hannah, in her actions, is saying to you and, and to me, many, 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 many centuries later, I dare you to give up what you want to want what God wants. I'm, I'm going to say that again because that's a mouthful. I dare you to give up what you want in order that you can start to want what God wants for you and for this world. Now, that's somewhat easy to say, very hard to apply, because we want what we want. Isn't it true that you kind of have a script for your life and how it should go? I mean, maybe, maybe less so with 2020 and 2021 and everything's crazy, but you still have general things in your life that I need these things to be happy and to thrive. And if I, if I didn't have that or if things didn't work out a certain way, I, I don't know if I could really keep going. And so we honestly bring big asks all the time before God. If you're single, your big ask oftentimes is, God, I'm not happy being single. I look at all these happy married people around me and I want to find someone. And, and every year at the temple, I bring my requests. And every year, 
I don't meet him. I don't meet her. Or maybe you're married and it's the opposite. I'm, I'm married and I'm really miserable in this marriage, God. And I know I made a commitment to you, but I, oh, I just want to be single. And I, every year I ask out of this from you, God. And, and it's not, I don't hear you saying I can get out. Maybe your big ask is, I just don't want to live in this state anymore because if, if that is what spring looks like and I'm this age and I got 40 more springs, like, please, Lord, release me. What if whatever your big ask is, God is asking you through the example of Hannah to be a little more open-handed, a little more open-minded about his plan. Now, there's a logical encouragement in this. Sometimes I think about this when I, because I, I, like you, get stubborn, and I think, no, I want what I want, God. I don't want you to alter what I want. It, it should look like this. Please make that happen. But I'm not God. You're not God. There is one God. God is the source of every good thing. God knows what would truly satisfy the deep desires of your heart way more than you do. God also knows what things need to occur for you to truly be a blessing to other people. You know, the, the Israelites' basic orders are you're a special chosen people. Not special because you're better than everybody, but special in the sense that you're going to be an example. I'm going to forge you into a small group of people that will lead other people. I'm going to bless you in unique ways, but I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the rest of the world. That's what blessing is. It's not just hashtag blessed, I love my life, put a filter on it, put it on social media, make other people jealous. No, no, no. Every blessing in our life is meant to, to flow through the conduit of our words and deeds and generosity. And so what if your big ask needs to be modified in, in order to be a blessing to other people? What if God knows better than you know regarding that one thing that is missing in your life and what that circumstantially needs to look like? He knows that Hannah wants a, a, a son, and that's not a bad thing to want. It is not wrong to be ridiculed by everybody around you and want that to stop. It's not wrong to want to shape a young life. It's not wrong to want some security. But, but it's through the year after year of enduring, patient, persistent prayer, it's through the pain and the suffering and Hannah's response to it. It's through her courage to pray a dangerous prayer that something shifts and the woman stands up and, and it's different. And, and now, now it's not about Hannah. Now she can handle the unintended slight of the double portion, the visible reminder that she doesn't have a son or she gave her son away. I'm, I'm blown away when I really think about the social pressure this woman had <laughs> and what it would mean to say, all right, new, new request, totally reframed. If you make me a mom, I'm going to give the child back to you 100% in a costly way. And, you know, I think there's kind of another side message to parents in this. Do you see your children as your personal property? They're not. You're at best stewards. And if you want to do right by your kids, you might remind yourself on a regular basis, this child for whom I prayed belongs to God. I'm merely guiding and shaping and nurturing and coaching, 
but it's as if I've given them over to be Nazarites. By the way, most psychologists would agree if you kind of have a white-knuckled grip on your kid, and they have to play this sport, and they have to perform in this way, and I have to make sure they go to the college that I went to, and they're not going to turn out so well. Some of us can relate to that. You know, our parents made us everything, and that, that, that didn't work or, or whatever. Yet this mystery of all my life I wanted a child for me, I still want to have a child, but I want to have a child for you, that changes everything. It frees us up. It helps us to say, all right, God, I'm going to give up what I want so that I can want what you want, so that my desires will be in step with your desires. I heard a story of a young woman just came to faith, had been abused, and really had a tough adult life, young adult life. She was addicted to male affection, kind of dependent on these abusive types. And she came to faith, and she started to see a counselor and get her life right. And she told this pastor, who who originally told the story, I'm struggling with my therapist because my therapist keeps telling me my main problem is looking for total justification and love and acceptance in men, in the affection of men. And I need to stop that. And I know I need to stop that because it's like I'm enslaved to what they think of me and they're, they're dysfunctional. But she said the answer is I need to invest in my career. I need to make something of myself. I need to really look at my worth in in terms of look at the amount of money I can make. But she said, here's the problem. I've been enslaved to these men, but that gives me a really good perspective on their life because every one of them to a T have been enslaved to their careers. And their whole emotions rise and fall on the promotion they didn't get or did get. Whether they feel like they're meaningfully valued at work and respected or not valued and respected, why would I trade one worthless idol for another worthless idol? She's a young Christian, but wow, what insight. And I think Hannah preceded her in that insight. Why would I trade the idol of motherhood and fertility and being a national cultural hero for just another idol when I could have the love and acceptance of the God who made me? If we put, when we put our functional trust in anything or anyone besides the creator who loves us, who knows us, who knows what's best for us, we will experience a deep anguish of the soul eventually. If our emotions, our mood, our well-being rise and fall based on the approval of a surrounding culture, we will be adrift. We'll stop knowing what we believe. We'll feel tormented. We'll stand for nothing other than not being laughed at. So Mercy Road, today, I pray courage over you and me. And I pray that that would come in the form of a dare. I dare you to believe God when others laugh at you. And I dare you to give up what you want. To want what God wants. Let's pray. God, thank you for Hannah. Thank you for her powerful life and testimony. I thank you that this woman, though she couldn't know it at the time, was instrumental in birthing Samuel, the very prophet who would be the forerunner to King David, who is the forerunner to Jesus, our Savior. She literally 
birthed the messianic salvation plan, and she didn't know it. Help us to be encouraged today to stand strong, to stand up for the truth, to be faithful to you, even in the face of criticism and rebuke and bullying. Help us to eagerly sacrifice and give up what we want or what we think we want for what you want. Make that clear to us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.